The winning zone is that space where a company starts to outpace the competition in product, strategy, and market growth. This podcast is where we hear from the executives who are driving that success. Is your B2B sales team missing revenue targets? Frustrated with long sales cycles? Not closing deals after demos? How about new hires? Are they ramping too slowly? Frontline managers struggling to impact quarterly performance? Then consider Loop. Drive rapid sales growth with best-in-class sales strategy, training, and playbooks proven to deliver results in some of the fastest-growing companies on the planet. Whether you are trying to maintain momentum or create it, we're the agile partners for your sales, customer service, and marketing teams. Consider CloseLoop, C-L-O-Z-E-L-O-O-P.com. That's C-L-O-Z-E-L-O-O-P.com. Hey, it's Hillman. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I'm also grateful for all of the positive feedback I've gotten from folks on the social channels, and it sounds like you're getting some value from the podcast. And of course, that's the goal. Speaking of feedback, if you do like the show, this is my appeal. Please, right now, subscribe and give it five stars. It helps others discover the show, and I'll keep doing my best to bring you great guests and great conversations. Thanks again. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Pacheco, author of Bringing Up the Boss, Practical Tips for New Managers. She's got a PhD in management, and she sits on a bunch of boards as an advisor. This is a very tactical conversation of what you do, either as a new manager or with your new managers, to help give them the tools they need to be successful in the role. Haven't heard of books like this before. Let's go. You're entering the winning zone. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here with you, Hillman. I'm so excited to talk about this concept of bringing up the boss, but in the spirit of talking, I love something that you wrote once. You said that one way to be a great manager is to just stop talking. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? <laughs> it's, it's amazing how much that, that, that comment resonated and, and reverberated. Um, uh, you know, because I think what happens with new managers is we want to fill the space. We want to be seen as experts. Uh, we want to be seen as having mastery um, over what we do. So a team member comes to us, uh, you know, we, we, we fill the space. We ask questions. We, you know, insert our ideas and our opinions. And it's really hard for us to say, I don't know, to stop talking and to truly listen to what our employees are saying and what our employees need. I think that's really powerful. I also, there's something really interesting you just said, that as managers, you listed three things that we want to, right? We want to be seen in a certain way. We want to fill the space. We want to. This is a very interesting mentality as a manager. How much did you observe with respect to new managers and them being in their own heads as opposed to being outside of their head and working on the management, whether it's the individual, whether it's the, 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 the workflow or the productivity, whatever it might be. How much does that factor into new managers' challenges? Yeah, it's huge. And, and, and what I would say, what I observed is most folks are promoted to manager um, without having the experience or, or you know, the prior responsibility in doing this role. So there's a huge amount of 
insecurity. There's a huge amount of vulnerability um, in place. So folks are totally in their heads trying to figure out, okay, what should I say now? Um, how is this going to be perceived? Uh, what's going to make it, uh, what, what's going to make me come across as confident? Um, what's going to, you know, I don't want my employee to think that I don't know what I'm doing and it's all in the head as opposed to just being out there and asking the employee, hey, what do you need? Or, um, you know, how do you perceive the situation? Uh, so I definitely agree that a lot of the, a lot of the challenges of new managers um, is over overanalyzing. So this this goes all the way back to the Peter principle, then just really continuing to promote somebody mm-hmm. until they get to that that space of their own ineffectiveness. Yes. How do you Absolutely. before we even dive into the book, before we dive into the crux of like the person has the management role, how do they go about managing? How do you go about managing them? How does one how should organizations or or C-level executives be thinking about promotability and the preparation of someone before you get them in that role? Because we do have that opportunity, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I I love that. This is um, if I can if I can leave readers or, or listeners with with one principle. It's this: it's that your employees and your teams can develop management um, capabilities from day one of their very first job. And mm-hmm. often um, we think of having a direct report as becoming a manager. And really, what it is is management. Management is broken up into a whole bunch of different things. It's having difficult conversations. It's giving constructive feedback. It's knowing how to motivate. It's knowing how to structure work. And those are all skills that can start to be built from day one of your career. And so I you know, really push uh, CEOs and leaders to do is to help their team members start to build those skills from the get-go. So when they do end up getting that direct report, they already have a whole bunch of these management skills in place. That makes a lot of sense. Is there a, this This is reminding me of some folks that I've worked with in the past who uh, consulted with them in organizations and gotten them prepared for management. They've gone into management and then a couple of years later, they're like, you know what? And particularly on the sales side, they're like, don't like it. I like being just in charge of me, you know, both financially, I make more money, I I keep my hair, I have more time on my hands, I'm not wholly dependent upon other people for my success. Are there things that you've thought about in in the exploration of managers that kind of are uh, flagpoles that help an individual understand, "Eh, maybe maybe management is not all it's cracked up to be, and I can be a, a significant contributor without having to have people under me. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so important because often we conflate um, achievement or progress in a field or in an organization with getting a larger and larger team. Um, and so folks don't see career growth or see progress unless they have team members under them. Hmm. So I think a lot of it is a cultural element um, of hey, it's okay if you opt out of management. And just like management is a skill like coding is or sales is, um, some people are great at it and some people aren't, um, you know, aren't meant to, aren't cut out to be managers. I think the other thing that I would just add is often uh, what I've seen and what, what's, what's happened is managers become exhausted because they aren't given the tools or the resources or the support from their organization. So, you know, a lot of the cognitive load of managers is put on the individual manager, as opposed to the organization 
saying, hey, these are the templates we have. Here are the questions to ask in a one-on-one. Here's how you can motivate your team. Uh, It's often, you know, the responsibility of the individual manager to think through these things each time, which just becomes exhausting. So how does that happen in a company that has a 30-year-old CEO that has gone from zero revenue to you know $25 million in revenue over the course of the last 18 to 24 months, has piled on a team full of folks, and is just aggressively chasing that hockey stick that the venture capitalists want. How do you pause? Maybe it's not a pause. Maybe you, know, you, you build the thing while it's flying, right? How do you begin to integrate those types of, that type of rigor and process into these fast scaling organizations? Yeah, and this is a lot of this is a lot of what my book focuses on and aims to accomplish. It's can we break management down into these, you know, these these specific capabilities that we can immediately start implementing in a fast-growing organization. Mm-hmm. So, for example, giving feedback and having, you know, effective and constructive feedback conversations really hard to do and really important, especially for a fast growing organization. Well, here's the, you know, here's the template or here's the tool to do it. Here's the, here's the script you should have so that again, the manager isn't spending time thinking through how do I have this conversation? What's the right way to do it? Do I, you know, where do I get external resources to do it? Um, They're able to quickly implement it and keep practicing. I would say, um, Oh, go ahead. No, no, please. And I would say, I think a lot of times, especially for new managers and in fast growing organizations with the young founders, there's a lot of fear, right? There's a fear of, I'm going to be seen as an imposter, or I'm going to be seen as um, not worthy of the management role. So it prevents, it, it, it prevents these managers from practicing. Um, you know, so, so, so part of what I encourage is, is just start doing it. It might be messy at first, uh, but the important thing is that, for example, you just start giving the constructive feedback uh, or you have the difficult conversations and it will get better over time. Uh, But often because of the fast growth and because of this vulnerability, we just don't do anything. I I want to double click on this concept of constructive feedback because I'm not sure everybody knows what that means by definition. Can can you share your definition of constructive feedback versus just continual nudging? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Constructive feedback is the, uh, you know, the, I consider it the, the concise and precise um, conversation you have with someone to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I think about it is constructive feedback starts from a place of objectivity and data. Um, it talks about the impact that it had on the giver of the feedback or the team or the client. Um, and it ends with a suggestion or a nudge in how that behavior can be changed. Uh, and the important thing in that is that, you know, we care about, we care enough about the people that we manage that we suggest how they can change their behavior. And we care about, care enough about the feedback that we're giving that we highlight why it's important and why it really impacts us. I think this is so key in the development of both the manager as well as the team member, the ability to have this conversation and the trust that's built in being able to do so. You talk 
you went in pretty deep on that reptilian brain and its impact on our response and attribution theory and the manager's responsibilities to create a safe environment for these types of things. Can you share a little bit of that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I imagine, you know, in corporate culture, we talk about feedback a lot. So I'm sure folks are, you know, rolling their eyes and saying, of course, more feedback. But, you know, I think one of the primary reasons why people don't give feedback is because it's really uncomfortable. And part yeah. of why it's so uncomfortable is because the, of how the recipient of the feedback reacts, right? We don't want, we don't want discomfort when someone reacts in a, in a, you know, in a negative way. And, but what we don't talk about is that it's completely natural to be defensive when we receive feedback. Sure. And that's, be, and that's because our bodies interpret feedback the same exact way that they interpret a physical threat. You know, Feedback is an attack on our social status or our self-perception or our identity. So what we do is we automatically and subconsciously protect ourselves. Um, and what we need to do rather is acknowledge and kind of step over that defensiveness as opposed to spending a whole bunch of time beating ourselves up over the fact that, you know, we got really defensive when someone told us that our PowerPoint presentation, you know, was subpar or something like that, right? You know, <laughs> too I, many words. I got to, right, too many words. <laughs> you know, I received feedback. I received feedback last week, and I got defensive. And I, you know, talk about and write about feedback for a living. Um, so, you know, it, it's it reminds me of learning to meditate to to kind of jump, you know, <laughs> jump sure. jump faces. Yeah, and you know, when you start meditating, you know, there's going to be all these random thoughts entering your head and distracting you. That's right. And, yeah. you know, what, what the, you know, the, the gurus call this monkey brain, right? And yep. that's, it's totally natural. Like defensiveness is natural. And the success in meditating is acknowledging those monkey thoughts and then stepping past them. So, you know, same thing with feedback. We're going to get defensive. Um, it's, it's, it's in our subconscious. It's part of our, you know, human nature. Uh, and it's really about acknowledging that defensiveness and then moving past it. I love that. It's, it's a perfect analogy. The, the monkey brain just does what it does. And it's all for self-protection, right? It's all right. because there's a certain level of vulnerability and we are programmed to avoid vulnerability because it means danger and it's a visceral threat, right? Exactly. So there's a piece of this that I love with respect to if you have a feedback culture, Right. If you have gone into a conversation with a manager and the manager has, you know, given you some constructive feedback and you lived through it and, and you felt <laughs> and you and you felt supported and you went on to conquer the next day, then it creates a culture wherein you kind of look for the feedback. I'm thinking of, you know, when I've been coached in yeah. some or when I've had great managers who've done this, you know, really well. I've been fortunate enough to have people in my life who've done this really well. And it, it makes you embrace it, it makes you better, right? And that's the goal, not to be punitive, right? It's it's so motivating, yes. right? You know that the behavior you did had a direct impact <clears throat> on your performance and, and what you were, you know, the, the success in, in your, your next day. Um, and, you know, employees hate to be left in the dark. So it's really scary when you're not receiving any feedback because you don't know where you stand and you don't know Absolutely. how you're doing. Um, and so it, it's, it's far better to have the awkward conversation hear the feedback um, and gives you the opportunity to improve. 
You know, it's interesting. You've broken the book into kind of two clear sections, if you will, which is managing the individual and managing the team. And when you talk about managing the in individual, there are a couple things you just touched upon that were really core tenets of those chapters. Performance, motivation, and meaning, right? How do those interconnect? Yeah, it's so I'll start from, let me take one step back. I think there's, sure. there, there are two common misperceptions, two big common misperceptions that I find with new managers. And the first is that you're a nice manager if you aren't prescriptive or don't, you know, quote, tell someone what to do. And the second misperception is that money is the primary mechanism by which to motivate people. Mm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this, this first part of the book, what I really try to do is show how performance and motivation are linked in that, you know, our team members are motivated by a variety of things. And so you know, to get this strong performance, you have to both be clear with your expectations, give feedback, and that people are motivated. Some people are motivated by achievement. Others, you know, care really deeply about feeling connected to a team, you know, and then, yeah, of course, some people are really motivated by money. Um, but, you know, it's how these things work in concert. Um, and just on this last part on meaning, you know, one thing, is, you know, is especially clear and even more so in the last year, and that's finding meaning in our jobs is critical. And our team members want to find meaning in their day to day. They want to know that their work matters and that they matter. Uh, and as managers, we have a responsibility to help them do that. Have, have you read um, the book Drive? Drive? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's a book by yeah. um, Daniel Pink. He wrote it's a number of years ago. It's, oh, I did, I did write. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. yes. It's, it's probably that. got this. It's probably got a subtitle that I haven't mentioned. But um, yes. yeah, you know, I, I was going to ask you if you had read it. Do those motivators still hold? Because compensation, I think, was like number seven of twelve, right? Right. And the things right. that you just mentioned around meaning and connectivity and purpose were way higher up the food chain for the things right. that motivate individuals. Do you, Do you know if that generational still holds true? I, mm, I haven't, that's, I, I would imagine it does. I haven't, you know, I, I haven't done research or seen recent research on that. So I don't want to, you know, speak, uh, speak without the data backing me up. Um, but, you know, this idea that meaning, achievement, community are really important. Um, I'm sure it's still the case. And the yeah. one thing I guess I, I would add is that it, it's also different for each person. So, you know, the person, one person might be really motivated by community and you might have another team member who's really motivate, motivated by achievement. And, and being a great manager means adapting your style, um, you know, or, or how you work with a team member based on their, uh, you know, what they are motivated by. You know, I am so glad that you you made this discernment between this, just this homogenous, like, oh, you manage people a certain way and people are motivated a certain way, and said, you've really got to look at the individual. Because one thing that I think is so important, and I learned this, I was fortunate enough to learn this early on in my career, is that you're managing an individual, even if it's a team. Mm -hmm. It's a team mm -hmm. of individuals, right? And mm -hmm. I remember, I don't think this thing still exists, and I'm sure I'm going to date myself significantly in saying this, but maybe it's out there on the 
to Google somewhere. There was this thing called the Notre Dame interview. And the idea was that when you first, either you've just taken a role as a manager and you've, you've got folks who are direct reports or um, you've hired somebody into the organization, it was actually a formal uh, scripted means of initial engagement to uncover things like, do you like public praise? Mm. Would you prefer that I say you did a great job in private, Rachel? Do you like this? You know what I mean? All these types of things that now, you know, you could probably more elegantly glean these things over the course of a couple months and conversations and coffees and walkabouts and things like that, right? But what it did for me is it framed me where I had blind spots with my team, like things that I just didn't mm-hmm. know, even though we're spending most of our lives together every day. <laughs> and that then makes you a better manager because you can now leverage the things that are important to motivate somebody. You understand why they're showing up from that meaning perspective. Like, what does this job mean to them? Is it the, that, that they're contributing significantly, that they're growing exponentially in their career, that they're making an impact? Is it mission-driven? Whatever it is that could be different or could be all of the above for people. I think it's so key. I really love that you said that. There's, there's a piece of this, there's a question here, which is, and I, and I hate to keep coming back to this generational thing, but people talk about this so much. They're talking about Gen Z coming in and, and how Gen Xers are in management now. And then you've got, you know, there's just, just the generational differences with respect to feedback or with respect to new management. Are, did you notice any of that? Or are there any things there that are significant that we should think about? This isn't quite answering your question, but I guess what, what I found was that the book started as a love letter to the, you know, the Gen Z and the millennial manager. Mm. Um, and, and what I found in a surprising way was that it really resonated with older managers as well. So I know this isn't exactly getting at your question, um, but no, this is fine. Some, some of the, you know, the fundamental core tenets of wanting to be seen, wanting to feel like your work matters and, and that you matter being recognized for um, being recognized for your success, feeling part of a team. It seems to hold right across, uh, yeah. across generations. What might be different is, is how you achieve those things, right? The, you know, one generation might much prefer, you know, public praise or a promotion, whereas another generation generation might prefer, um, uh, prom- prefer that recognition in a different way. But those core tenets, that that foundation, in my mind, you know, or in my opinion, seems to be the same. Yeah. What is the airport test? Oh, my my, my favorite. So I'll, I'll start with a little <laughs> story. Um, early in my career, I, I worked at a consulting firm. And of course, we did a ton of travel. And so when we were hiring new people to our team, you know, as a final check in the interview process, we, you know, we asked the question, you know, would you want to be stuck in the Detroit airport for six hours in the middle of a snowstorm with this person? And it was a way to make sure, you know, you liked the people you were working with and you could do lots of team dinners with them. And you felt like you could be friends as well as colleagues with, with the individual. Um, So, you know, in, 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 lots of organizations still use a similar uh, test today. And the only difference I found is that we call this test, uh, you know, testing for fit or testing for, for cultural values, right? Cultural fit, cultural value. Right. Yeah. Cultural fit, you know, and it's a lot of like, well, this person's not a fit. Um, and, you know, I'll kind of, kind of, kind of jump to why I hate the airport test. Um, if that's, if that's okay. And, and that's, 
it's just a terrible way to hire people, right? It's, we end up being really biased towards people who are just like us because we think we're great. So someone who looks and acts and talks like this, we also think are great. And we think they're great fit because they remind us of ourselves. Um, and, and what it does is it creates biases and prevents a team that's diverse and inclusive and often results in worst performing team members because we're not actually testing for the skills to do the job well because we're so enamored that, you know, oh, Susie and I have a mutual friend. Wow, I can talk to Susie forever. She must right. be wonderful, right? <laughs> and mean, meanwhile, the circle closes, right? <laughs> the circle closes and, 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 and Susie can't do any of the actual things you need her to do to be successful at the job. Yeah, so how do you, because culture fit is important, right? Like mm-hmm. what is, how do you create the band then within which you're evaluating culture fit? Is this, is it, you know, you set up your tenets around the things that you value in, in, in morality and ethics and, and, and productivity and, and the way you collaborate and go about work? Is it, how do you, how have you seen this done effectively? Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because I, I, the best way to do this is create a structured, consistent interview process that has very thoughtful behavioral questions to understand how people are going to behave in a situation. So, you know, you can test something like open openness to feedback, for example, um, through a behavioral question, um, as well as a, a work assessment. So understanding the more you can understand how someone's actually going to do the job you want them to do the better you know the better fit they're going to have in your um in in the role and and what i find though why it's so challenging is that you know companies have a really strong aversion to putting in place these structured processes uh because there's a fear that the interview process is cold or unfriendly um, or doesn't doesn't have space for that chit chat and that back and forth, um, you know. But in reality, when you're asking the same thoughtful questions that get at that really get at the um, the value or the cultural attribute that you're looking for, the candidate has a better experience, um, gets a better and more accurate understanding of the company, and in the manager, the hiring manager is much. Uh, it, much more able to assess to assess talent and assess performance. Is there an example of a behavioral question that that you could that, that you could think of that listeners can understand? Yeah, so something like you know, tell me about a time when you disagreed with your direct manager. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the idea is that people can kind of BS their way through questions around like. Hey, tell me your approach to feedback. Or sure. Tell me your approach to disagreement. We can say, oh, how do you handle feedback? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Oh my gosh, I'm so you know. But it's much harder for people to make up stories on the fly of what they actually did. Yeah. And That's... right, and people think that their own behavior is the right behavior. So they might tell you a story of how they behaved in a certain situation, thinking <laughs> that that's. Right. And you might be like, oh, my gosh, that is not how, you know, I would want a team member to behave. 
That's appalling. You did what? Yeah. <laughs> so Rachel, right. I'll share with I'll share with you something that uh, that I've been doing for years, uh, and, and I coach our clients on with respect to things like coaching, right? Because coaching is an important piece. Mm-hmm. It, it ties to this feedback thing. What we'll do is is an experiential interview, right? So let's say that we're talking, mm-hmm. I'm talking to Jennifer mm-hmm. and, and Jennifer gives me a whole bunch of information and they'll say, okay, so the next person you're going to talk to is Rachel. And I love the way you framed some of these things for me with a lot of narrative. That was very helpful. I'll tell you this about Rachel. Rachel is a numbers driven person. She wants to understand mm-hmm. the metric. She wants to understand how you got there. She wants just facts and figures. So when you meet with her, be sure to couch these things in under that, you know, mm. under the auspices of numbers, right? Saying that that's, that's important to the job, right? Now, when Rachel meets with her, you're going to know that I've had this coaching conversation with Jennifer. And the idea is mm. how well did Jennifer take and apply that feedback? Is she talking to you about the numbers, right? And what's right, so interesting right. is people who say like, you know, they handle feedback well, or they like coaching, or they appreciate insight and guidance is that and the other, they don't demonstrate it. It just doesn't show up. Right. Or it does in spades. And you're like, wow, this is fantastic. They did exactly what we asked. And, you know, you allow for that as part of the interview process. But there's so many things that, to your point, if you're rigorous about the competencies that you're looking for and you understand these in advance of the interview and you conduct interviews that are thoughtful and, and well-planned, not meaning rigid, right? Not not uncomfortable right. and, and, and um, inhuman, right? But just right. thoughtful, then you get the data that you need. And I agree with you. I think that it's great for both the candidate as well as, or for the future employee, as well as for the management team, because both know what they're going to get, right? Yes. And I'd add, you know, one more incredibly important element of this, and that's we have implicit biases. And when we don't have structured interview processes, our biases come into play. And, uh, you know, we discount people who are different from us. um, And we, you know, we aren't inherently fair with, with our candidates. And by having this structured process where you're asking the same questions across all candidates, you're, you're reducing bias, um, which is, you know, we know that we all have biases. And this is a way to make sure that, um, you know, as managers and as organizations, we aren't perpetuating, um, you know, issues and systems that are biased. That's huge. You know, we, we've dovetailed into this concept of team and the name of the podcast is The Winning Zone because I define it as the space where a company begins to outpace the competition in product and strategy and mm-hmm. market growth. Of course, all of this necessitates a team. Like implicit in mm-hmm. this is that you've built a team that's working well, that's collaborating well, that's high performing, that's efficient, that's successful, that's attracting new people and retaining the folks that you've got. You talk about team, you know, there, there's an acronym you used called TINO. Will, will you share that? Because I found this very interesting. <laughs> the, the the acronym that came up after uh, a, a few too many adult beverages one night <laughs> out, with, out with a couple girlfriends, um, and it, it came up because a, a girlfriend of mine was complaining about her executive team, uh, and so you know we started riffing on it, and it was this idea of the Tino, and and really the idea is that we spend so much time, you know, making the perfect team. We find individuals that have complementary capabilities. We, you know, we have this great interview process and we find top talent. We go on team building retreats. Uh, but what we end up having is this Tino, which is a team in name only. Yeah, I love and, this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we don't spend time building the foundation of a great team. 
one that actually works in, you know, in concert to accomplish goals. Rather, we just have a collection of exceptional individuals who happen to meet once a week. And so it's really this idea of a team isn't just a group of individuals. A team is its own entity, right? Is its own, uh, you know, it has its own sense of being. And how do you create an actual team? I think that's fascinating. And, and this idea of its its own being, I know you used an analogy of a beach house. I was talking to a friend who is a, um, she's a psychotherapist and she also does a lot mm. of organizational design. And she was talking about this concept of marriage where you have mm. an individual, right? You, you have two partners, you know, and then you have the marriage and that the most mm. successful people view the marriage as its own entity. And it's yeah. not just me and it's not just you and it's not just kind of us. It's all of that and this other entity. So it sounds as though you're saying that there's this group of individuals and there may be hierarchy in there and there may be, you know, different different roles. And then there's the entity called team, which is actually separate from the company. Is that fair? Is that where you're mm -hmm. going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly right. And that that particularly resonates in my my first year of marriage. <laughs> yeah, and thinking about this, you know, this idea of a, a separate entity. Um, yeah, and I would, I would, I would just add the way to get there, right? So, so actually, just had a conversation the other the other night with a guy on a in a very high performing startup, um, in exceptional executives, and like, okay, well, we understand, we want to be this team, but but what does it mean to what does it mean to be a great team? What's how do you build this foundation? Um, and it's it's actually simple, right? Um, simple in what you need, and that's to put the foundation in place. The team needs to be operating from the same set of norms. Mm. So, have you made explicit um, the norms and the expectations of the team? And a lot of times, we go into teams, and and everyone has a slightly different implicit set of norms, right? How we work, how do we run meetings? How do we have conflict? And we never actually make them explicit and put them on paper and communicate and litigate what we want those norms to be. So there's this amazing research um, that Google actually did where they looked at, I think, 170 teams. And they found that the most high-performing teams weren't the ones who had the most rigid agenda and, you know, were super efficient and cut to the chase or uh, the team that, um, you know, had clear decision-making or anything like that. It was that everyone on the team understood what the, uh, you know, what the norms were. So there might've been a team that spent the first 20 minutes of a meeting chit-chatting and talking about weekends and then having this really loosey-goosey agenda. But as long as everyone on that team was aware of this is how we operate, then that team was high performing. I, I am thinking of folks who have actually been on this podcast and even some others who are friends of mine who have been great stewards of the uh, esprit de corps that happens on a team. And mm. it's ev evidenced by the fact that as they've moved up the chain from a VP role to an SVP role to, you know, now some are in the C-suite and even a few have founded their own companies, those folks that they worked with seven, eight, ten years ago have followed them like yeah. a dot to dot from place to yeah. place. 
And the beauty, though, is not to the exclusion of adding more folks to that team, but really just the amoeba growing larger, 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 and then, you know, the diaspora occurs when, when some folks get to a certain level, they move off into their own things. But it's almost like having a coaching tree, you know, some of these famous sports teams or or large um, uh, large management firms have, have these folks who have moved off and then they sprout their own teams that are all kind of under the same sort of philosophy. So I know if you've been on Rachel's team, then you can work on Hillman's team because we espouse the same things and, and we operate the same way. So impactful and it's so, so helpful to hear that it can be prescriptive because I think a lot of times it just seems like, well, the magic just happened. You know, right. just, I, I don't know what happened, but we just came together right. and wow, it's like the skies opened up, you know? <laughs> Yeah. 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 That's a great point. No, it's, it's, it's work. It's, you know, being thoughtful about putting, putting norms in place and addressing conflict when it arises and making sure the team feels psychologically safe. It's, it is like a marriage, right? Where you might be, you know, deeply and madly in love, but each day you have to, you know, wake up and work to commit to, uh, you know, to make your marriage stronger. That's it. That's it. So last question for you. I, I always wonder when, when folks have put together such comprehensive books that have coupled a significant amount of research along with the practical application and your experience as a board advisor to a number of organizations. And obviously, you know, not, not everyone has the opportunity to get a PhD from Wharton and really understand this stuff at depth. <laughs> Were there any assumptions before you wrote the book? And I love that you called the love letter to Gen Z. Gen Z needs some love. I love that. <laughs> I support that wholeheartedly. <laughs> um, but, but were there any assumptions that you had going into writing the book that were either unmet or even contradicted by your research? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, uh, I might answer this in a slightly different way because I don't think it was necessarily a a, con a concept or a piece of research. I think what was surprising to me was, I'll use a little story. So about a month ago, I was having a conversation with a friend who works at a big tech company, you know, a company that you've probably used it in the last hour. Okay. Right? And she's, she, so, you know, big, well-known organization. And, um, you know, she's 18 years into her career, went to well-known business school and is now just starting to manage someone. And she's, and she's really struggling, right? And she's in this vulnerable and self-conscious position uh, with seeking out help and support to manage well because it's assumed, right, that after almost 20 years of a career and as an expert in her field, she should just know how to manage. Mm -hmm. And so I think what was, you know, what was surprising um, and really rewarding for me was in, in writing this book and having all these conversations through my coaching and through my advising, um, you know, I learned that we have this myth, right, or this narrative that because you're an expert or because you're far along in your career, you should know how to manage. And, you know, no one came out of the womb knowing how to code. <laughs> and similarly, <laughs> right, no one came out of the womb knowing how to manage. And just because you've been working for such a long time doesn't mean you should automatically have these skills. And so I think that was um, that was just something that really stuck out with stuck out for me in this in this in this research and in this work and this writing um, is that even the folks you know 20 years in it's actually much harder to uh, to, to to become a great manager because it feels even riskier right than when you're three years in and you get promoted to manager because your company's growing quickly. 
Um, yeah. You have to be much more vulnerable, uh, you know, around the fact that you might not have these skills, even though you've been incredibly successful in your career and you're a true expert in what you do. But the upside is that it can be learned. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. This is great. Uh, Rachel Pacheco, author of Bringing Up the Boss, Practical Tips for New Managers. Two questions. One, who should get the book? Yeah, it's folks who, it's like two, two, two groups, folks who just want to up their management game, you know, whether they're in a nonprofit or a startup or an established organization, you know, someone who's looking for immediately usable tools and tips and tricks. And then second, leaders of organizations who are working to build exceptional teams and thriving cultures. Mm, because if your managers, if your managers aren't successful and your managers aren't well equipped, then everyone is going to suffer. Um, yeah. So really, you know, I really hope to reach these two audiences. That's great. And who should connect with you and how would you like them to do it? Yeah. So uh, I think best is I share a lot of tips and tools through LinkedIn. So you can okay. find me. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, or send me an email at Rachel at bringingupthebot.com. Um, and I love to hear folks' management challenges and you know ideas for for content or for things to research, um, as well as you know, hopefully I can be helpful as 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 things arise. Rachel, this has been a really valuable conversation, and I appreciate you joining me in the winning zone. Thanks, Hillman. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Winning Zone podcast. Please take a second to press that subscribe button right now to show your support. And make sure you never miss an episode.